Hi, this is Elliot Fishman, and welcome to our latest talk. And this is going to be on pitfalls and errors in body CT, what they are and how to avoid them. I think all of us know that um, we're getting busier and busier in practice. The cases are becoming more and more difficult. And we're trying our best to get every case read correctly. But the reality is there are all sorts of issues. I mean, and I thought about it. In this COVID era issue, there are new errors that we really haven't faced before. We have limited staffing at the technologist and radiologist level. Everybody is short staffed. You have lots of new technologists. A lot of the old people have left. A lot of the experience has left. On the radiologist level, we have just a shortage of radiologists. No matter where you are, the volumes have increased and the number of radiologists has remained the same or decreased in some scenarios. We've modified protocols in the COVID era. First, we're afraid to take masks off. Then we have contrast shortages, all sorts of issues. Um, and also, there's just a general fatigue. People have not been to meetings. Yes, people have gotten CME over Zoom, but I think people are Zoomed out. They put on the Zoom and they fall asleep or they do 10 other things. You don't have the attention span you had before. And when you're in a meeting, you're interacting, you're energized. When you're sitting at a Zoom call in your chair, I think you're under-energized. So I think all of these things are not helping us. When you look at the big picture, and this is not just related to radiology, of course, when you look at the Institute of Medicine on their most recent report, a conservative estimate found that 5% of U.S. adults who seek outpatient care each year experience an error. Postmortem exams, spanning many research decades, have shown that diagnostic errors contribute to approximately 10% of patient deaths. Medical records review that diagnostic errors account for up to 17% of hospital adverse events, and that diagnostic errors are the leading type of paid medical malpractice claims, and they're almost twice as likely to have resulted in the patient's death compared to other claims and represent the highest proportion of total payments. But I'm not really worried here about malpractice. I mean, malpractice does happen to everybody and often it's not your fault, but that's not really the issue. The issue is the frequency of errors and mistakes everybody is making. The conclusions were terrible. The committee concluded that most people who experience at least one diagnostic error in their lifetime sometimes with devastating consequences, which means you can die. And despite the pervasiveness of errors and the risk for serious patient harm, diagnostic errors have been largely unappreciated within the quality and safety movements. Now, I will say the quality and safety movements have moved forward looking at diagnostic errors, and people are very concerned about these errors, but I don't think there's been really a good manner of coming up with ideas of how to solve these problems. When you think about radiologists specifically, this uh, issue was addressed, that perceptual or cognitive errors are made by radiologists. In addition, incomplete or incorrect patient information, as well as insufficient sharing of patient info. For example, we don't have old films because it was done in another hospital. There's no central data storage. Uh, this lack of information may lead to the use of inadequate protocols, incorrect interpretation of results, or selection of an inappropriate imaging test by a referring physician. Referring clinicians often struggle with choosing the right imaging exam 
because they just don't know what exam to order. There are rules for exams of what you should get, CT, ultrasound, MR, but we also know that availability has an impact factor, particularly in the COVID era, but also the fact, depending what institution you are, how well people do CT or how well they do MR or how well they do PET or how well they do ultrasound is indeed going to vary. So whatever the published results are, you may be better or you may be worse. Now, this article by McCary made the point that medical error is the third leading cause of death in the U.S. Number one and two are heart disease and cancer, but medical error is number three and it's rising. And in fact, medical error is typically unreported. For example, if you miss a lung nodule today and the patient dies in four years from metastatic lung cancer, and four years ago it could have been resected for cure, the patient will die from lung cancer not from a misdiagnosis. So misdiagnosis at number three, but as we really fight back against cancer and heart disease, medical error is moving up the chart, and that, of course, is not good. That article does make the point that human error is inevitable, and I think it's important to recognize you can't totally eliminate error. The key thing is designing better ways, safer ways, of mitigating its frequency, visibility, and consequences. We need to figure out ways of minimizing error. That's what AI, for example, is going to try to do, pick up things the radiologists miss. It doesn't mean the AI is better than the radiologist necessarily on all cases, but in that specific case, it may point to something and say, hey, you missed a fracture. Hey, you missed the lung nodule. Hey, you missed this pancreatic mass. Take a second look. So the key is, how do we take human limitations into account and develop ways of solving that. If you ask the question, how often do we make an error in radiology? Many different articles, but this article by Kim and Mansfield make the point, interpretation error is three to 4%. However, in studies that contain abnormalities, the error rate can average up to 30%. That's scary to me. When you're talking about errors, we talk about errors of misdiagnosis or overcalling things, overreading, underreading, Underreading is 42%, but underreading is the biggest challenge. If I find a liver mass and I say it's a hepatoma, someone else might look and say, no, it's a hemangioma, or you get another study to prove it's a hemangioma or a hepatoma. On the other hand, if I say the study's negative, no one's probably going to take a second look at that study. So underreading is really the biggest problem. In this article by Rosencrantz, he made the point that misfindings rather than misinterpretations of detected abnormalities were the most common reason for addendum. So when you see an addendum to a report, it's not saying typically, oh, I think that mass is hemangioma, not hepatoma, or I think it's hepatoma, not hemangioma. What you're saying is, oh, by the way, I missed the mass in segment three of the liver. So again, a key thing is how do we minimize these errors? Now, in that article by Rosencrantz, 709 addendum describing 785 diagnostic errors were identified, 84% were new findings. So again, it's this missing things that is the biggest challenge. Now, this article by Sokolovska kind of was somewhat obvious, but it's a good article. They determined to look and see if radiologist errors increased when you read faster. Well, one thing we know for sure is if you read faster, you're not going to make less errors. 
Uh, reading at faster speeds resulted in more major misses for four or five radiologists. Again, the average interpretation error rate of major misses among the five radiologists reporting at the faster speed was 26.6% compared to 10% at normal speed, which means all of us who are busier and busier than ever, you're going to triple your error rate. And that indeed is scary. In the same article, our pilot study found a significant positive correlation between faster reading speed and number of major misses and interpretation error. So everyone, slow down. And if you're reading fast, please pay more attention. Again, reading fast and paying more attention seems to be in conflict because you need to spend X amount of time looking at a case. Now, of course, people have said, well, maybe one way to avoid error is to have two people read a study. And there's no doubt that does help. Sometimes if you read with a resident or a fellow, that can be helpful. Or it can be harmful because you tend to believe what they said. If you have two attendings reading a study, that would be good. But let's be frank, these days we barely have time to have one attending read the study. Two is theoretical, but it's just not going to happen. The only double read you're going to get in the future is if AI becomes your companion. Now, the practice of reinterpreting imaging exams from outside institutions shows the issue with double reads. Error rates as high as 41% have been reported during reinterpretation of outside CT and MR exams in a patient with head and neck cancer in an academic institution. So the point is that when you have a second read, you often will pick up more findings. Now, sometimes people say, well, it's because you're now at a tertiary center, there's more experience. Sometimes that's an impact. We see that with pancreatic cancer. Sometimes just a second read, you might have more history. You may be paying more attention. It's not just a routine study. So in those situations, perhaps that explains why the second reader does so much better. Regardless, you can see the problem is very complicated. As Johnny Ivey, the founder of uh, or discoverer or the co-worker with Steve Jobs who did the iPhone and iPad, made the point that the goal is to try to bring a calm and simplicity to what are incredibly complex problems so you're not aware of the solution. Most of the time, people come up with solutions. The solutions can drive you crazy. We need to find ways that make things easier, not harder. In this article by Weight, the comment, given the ultimate human task of perception, some degree of error is inevitable even with experienced observers. However, an understanding of the causes of error maybe can help you mitigate these errors. Now, they classified errors as perceptual and interpretive. Perceptual errors account for up to 80% of errors and occur when abnormality is present but not seen by the radiologist. Interpretive errors, 20 to 40%, probably closer to 20, occur when you misinterpret what a finding is. Again, as I mentioned, the biggest worry to me is when you miss something. Now, they talk about the cognitive biases from anchoring bias, confirmation bias, availability, satisfaction, on and on. And you know about many of these, and you could read them on the slide. But I'll tell you, when I look at all the possible biases there are, I wonder how I ever read a study correctly. Now, it's very important to think about that. In another article by um, Andor, radiology errors can be classified according to reporting processes, pre-reporting, reporting, or post-reporting errors. 
Pre-reporting errors consist of technical issues. Post-reporting are mainly caused by poor communication between radiologists and clinicians, which mean I see an incidental finding or an important finding, and no one acts on the finding. And of course, the reporting errors are what we just spoke about, perceptual and interpretive. Now, in this article by uh, Flowers, looking at the difference between subspecialists and uh, just people who are generalists, there's always going to be that issue in this ish article on um, looking at uh, transfer patients in a trauma center showed that overreading patient exams would be helpful. But again, we always will make the point that a second read will always be helpful. And if that second reader is not as busy as the first reader, it's going to be significantly better. So I think it's very important. Uh, obviously, if you don't have a lot of experience and you're reading a case, you're going to make more errors. Errors were made by a wide number of community radiologists as opposed to a small number of outliers. These findings suggest that trauma center radiologists provide added value over reading these patients' exam. It is difficult to predict which patients or exams will contain discordances, justifying routine overreading of all such exams. Again, a second read is nice, but how practical is it? And in most places, you're not going to get reimbursed, so it's typically not going to be done. Now, we took a different approach, perhaps, and this is going back more than a decade, where we recognized in our own practice that although there are infinite number of errors possible, there are certain errors that happen over and over again. If you just thought for a second, what's a common error? One is to miss a PE. That's a common error. Two, to miss an early pancreatic cancer. That's a common error. So we thought perhaps if you look at the common errors and explore why those errors happen and you think about them, you're probably going to make them less frequently. So that is a good way of thinking about things. Now, of course, one of the most important things in me reading a study or you reading a study correctly is the protocol. If the study's done well, you're going to be much better at being accurate. If the stomach's not distended, you didn't give oral contrast, how are you going to make a diagnosis of an early gastric cancer? If you do a study without IV contrast because you want to rush through things or there's not enough contrast, you're going to miss a lot of things. Uh, in this article by Lemaroux, in the absence of contraindications, encouraging urgent care physicians to preferentially order IV contrast and CT exams of the abdomen and pelvis may increase detection of urgent pathology and avoid short-term repeat CT. You got to do the study correctly the first time. If you don't give IV contrast, if you're just doing everything as a non-contrast, if there's a big mass present, you'll find it. But think of the kidney for a second. We'll talk about the kidney a bit later, but if you don't give IV contrast, you're going to miss infarcts, you're going to miss pyelonephritis, and you're going to miss small tumors. Okay, yes, you'll pick up stones on a non-contrast, but that's it. There's so much you're going to miss. We need to make certain we do the studies correctly the first time. If not, your error rate is going to increase. The result of this study advanced our understanding of how administration of IV contrast for CT of the abdomen and pelvis influences detection of urgent and non-urgent clinical important pathology in the urgent setting. To reduce potentially medically unnecessary redundant imaging within a short time frame, this information may be useful for optimization of CT exam protocols. 100% agree. Our protocol is give IV contrast. There's select reasons you can't. Perhaps there's a severe allergy. 
Perhaps the patient's in renal failure or you're looking for a stone. Otherwise, you gotta give IV contrast. The same issue comes with oral contrast. The arguments that the ER docs don't want it, which is true in many places. They just want the study done. They're not really worried if you're reading correctly. Just get it done. Well, this article by Alec Megabo, our emergency physicians do not see oral contrast uh, as a hampering operational efficiency. In fact, they've expressed gratitude to our department for care and diagnosis. They're all aware of the acute, serious consequences of miss or incorrect diagnosis and will always choose good medical care of a time slashing, corner cutting methods that impress the dashboard monitors, perhaps at the expense of excellence in patient care. And we want excellence in patient care. Again, Dr. Megabo goes on to say, at NYU, we speak with our ER section. We explain to them the benefits of oral contrast in the ED, and we find that they're happy with it. And again, as stated by uh, Tata, it is insistence on relentless attention to detail and assistance on highest standards of quality and performance that are the keys to productivity and efficiency, most certainly not through cutting corners. Amen, brother. Uh, another article by Perry Picker, this looked more at the oncology patients, but again, the importance of oral contrast in preventing misses. Uh, as Perry says, for those who believe as I do that it can genuinely increase diagnostic confidence and can sometimes rather unpredictably make a major impact on diagnosis, it behooves us to keep fighting for the use of oral contrast. Perry does go on to make the point that a disturbing recent trend is the increasing decision to forego positive oral contrast for increased patient throughput, typically driven by non-radiologists such as ED physicians, surgeon, and even health system administrators. As radiologists, we need to ensure that such financially driven non-medical justifications are in the best interest of our patients. Well said, Perry. So then let's go back to the comment I made about looking at a specific diagnosis. Why is pathology missed on a CT scan? Well, sometimes, maybe there's an infinite number of reasons, there's poor search strategy. Abdominal CT for pancreatitis, oh, you didn't look at the lower lung fields with thin sections and you missed the PE. Perhaps because of lack of oral contrast or lack of good distension, you undercalled or overcalled the presence of pathology in the small bowel. And sometimes you are reading very quickly, it's a trauma case, you're looking for uh, organ injury and you assume that two centimeter renal mass, well-defined is a cyst, and it's really a hypovascular renal cell carcinoma. Also, we know that on a CT scan, you may be looking for appendicitis, and the patient may have diverticulitis, or pyelonephritis, or pancreatitis, or liver, on and on and on. Unsuspected pathology not related to the primary cause of the exam is one error of missing. Incidental findings of clinical importance can occur in every organ and every anatomic zone. You need to look at the entire scan. And I also put this down a couple years ago, that checking out residents and fellows in academic institutions, although it's fun and at times can be very helpful and time efficient, it's very easy to kind of get caught up in what the person says and agree with them and not look as carefully. I guess these days when you did a lot of the Zoom checking, perhaps you can get over that, but I've noticed again errors with the two readers 
because you're assuming that first reader is correct. Now, there are other specific causes of error, and I want to go through them, but I see we've used up our allotted time. Let's take a break here, come back in a few minutes, and we'll start with part two of this talk. Thanks very much. If you like this video, make sure to subscribe to the CTSS YouTube channel. You can also visit us at ctss.com for even more videos, plus quizzes, pearls, protocols, and oh so much more. We're also in the App Store and have well over a dozen apps for iPhone and iPad, all completely free. Thanks for watching.